from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 49, recorded July 27th, 2023. I am your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell. And with me, as always, is Julia Alexander, Director of Strategy here and at Parrot Analytics. Julia, hello. Welcome back. Jason, hi. How are you? Doing great. How are you? Good. I am. I'm wearing a sweater. It, there's an, uh, an excessive heat warning, but it's that moment where it's so hot outside, but like I have the air conditioning on going and so I'm freezing inside. So I'm wearing a sweater and looking outside at people wearing like the yeah. barest of clothes. Yeah, it is. Uh, I Well, I'm in the in the Bay Area, so I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt because <laughs> of fog. Um, but I do hear it's hot almost everywhere else. Uh, just not here. So I'm not going to complain so about it because everybody yeah. else is sweating and mad that I'm not cold or I'm not hot. The Bay Area cold. has maybe my favorite, can I say, just weather. I, I think it's 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 a little chilly all year round and it's a little warm when you want it to be warm. And it's like microclimates and it's just yep. it's it's the best part about the Bay Area. Um, so uh, I, I put the show together uh, today and I thought there's two kind of big topics that I wanted to uh, talk about with you. Um, we're going to talk about Bob Iger. And all the aspect, many, many, many stories, many facets of the Bob Iger story in a little while. But I wanted to start, I was jumping off of um, some comments you made in a couple appearances and podcasts I'll put in the show notes on the Plain English podcast and the Town podcast, talking about sort of the stuff we talk about on an ongoing basis. This, this is your job. This is your area of expertise. But there's a line I saw streaming by on Twitter, and I thought, I've been thinking about this a long time, and I know we've talked about a lot of these aspects. I just wanted to get into it with you a little bit, which is, the line is, did Netflix lure everyone else into the quicksand? Mm. Did Netflix and its success in streaming make every other company in Hollywood be like, oh, we also must be Netflix? And then they all waded into the streaming quagmire and are losing money and are having all sorts of financial difficulties. And Netflix, meanwhile, they, they did like a double take and Netflix is back on dry land, like, you know, having a drink and their sunglasses are on and they're like super cool and making money and being successful. Um, and I feel like maybe in some ways that's the story of the last couple of years is Everybody wanted to be Netflix, but they after they tried, um, Netflix is actually, and in fact, Netflix is one particularly notably bad quarter is the mm -hmm. thing that kicked this all off. And then Netflix was like, oh, we're fine now. And everybody else is freaking out. So what what do you think about this idea that that like everybody wanted to be Netflix, but their, I don't know if their reach exceeded their grasp or whether their, uh, their eyes um, were bigger than their stomach or whatever metaphor you want to use here. But we, we've ended up in a very weird position where Netflix looks like still number one and still the winner and everybody else is feeling a lot of pain. Before I think I give my opinion, I'm curious just as someone who has been thinking about this and as someone who I think ha brings really, really invaluable insight to podcasts, I'm curious <laughs> what you think about – because I've I've given this answer 10,000 times and it changes, by the way. This answer like changes uh, all the time, but sure. I'm curious how you see it. Okay, so I love it when you do this. You turn it right back. You turn my questions right back around on me. I <laughs> – I kind of want to give a contrarian answer here. I kind of want to say, 
I know that the big entertainment companies are struggling because of various, you know, they've got, they're losing money and their investors are upset and they're, or, or they're, or they're in debt like Warner Brothers Discovery because of the way that they were purchased, right? Not really because of the business fundamentals, but because of how the company was purchased. And I, my, so my contrarian take is the future of entertainment is streaming. And while anybody can have a website and everybody, anybody can have a streaming service, the truth is there is a, a, a land rush that has been going on mm-hmm. and you spend money, not you spend all that money on Marvel and, and, uh, and, and Star Wars shows. If you're Disney, not to make money in year one or two or three. You spend that money now so that five years from now, there are only three or four services standing. You're one of them. And then you make a lot of money. That's sort of that's sort of what I'm thinking right now is that I feel like the pendulum has swung too far the, back the other way where suddenly everybody's like, oh, these things are losing money. They got to make money. When the whole point all along was to lose money in the short term, just as Netflix did when it started, but stake out ground so that you end up as one of the places that is a go-to place for this kind of thing. Now, maybe it won't work out that way, but I still feel like that this is, it feels a little premature for everybody to be pulling back and saying, okay, let's stop losing money. Um, Because there is still an advantage to be gained by being an established force. And if you don't establish yourself, the risk is that your service is going to fall by the wayside and you're going to have to get out of what could be a potentially profitable business in the long run and end up sort of like receding back into just saying, okay, I'm just a studio and I'm going to make content for other people to buy from me instead of owning that channel. So like, I don't think Netflix is going to be the only one to do that. So that's, that's my feeling is like, whether it's, I know why David Zaslav is cutting because of the way that the the finances of the company worked out. But like Disney's a great example where I know Disney has a lot of issues and they got a lot of debt and all of that. But like, on the other hand, their strategy to stake out that ground, I think, is probably still a pretty good strategy. I mean, there's a lot of detail there, but like it, it wasn't supposed to be profitable in year three, I don't think. I think the idea is you, you lose a lot of money for the first three, four, five years, but then the next, then you've got like, 15 years of big profits because you're one of the only ones. I don't know. That's that's, that's how I feel today. How do you feel today? <laughs> well, I think that segues perfectly into what has been my line of thinking on this for quite some time, which is when we look at where Netflix came up from, and I think having a little bit of a history lesson is important, right? So with ignoring the history of where the legacy media companies came from, ignoring that they were sitting at near 40% profit margins on a very inexpensive product when you compare it to other fields like oil. Like if you, it just what the cable bundle was, was the greatest piece of profit inducing product for uh, any form of company ever. Like, like it just was an insanely good product. So ignoring that because that will come up later. But but look at the history of of Netflix for a second. The reason why people get upset with where who I'm going to put a lot of blame on is if you look at Netflix, Netflix, by the time that they've reached the uh, level of of kind of 
user activity about 2007, 2008, 2009 for them to kind of switch over to a streaming product from a DVD product. They had the level of adoption they wanted to kind of say, cool, we're going to launch this product. We're going to wean off the DVD. We're not going to close it entirely. They like just started. They like just announced that they were closing it just now. Um, they said, but we're going to really transition over to streaming. We think two things are going to happen. One, that technology-enabled dev- uh, devices like like mobile devices, along with the app store, tablets, all these other things are going to move people's attention away from a physical, like when we're thinking about this physically, they're going to, it's going to move it away from pure TV sets and living rooms to kind of laptops and iPads and mobile, and they're going to be everywhere. And they're going to want to be able to stream over Wi-Fi and over 5G, 4G, 5G connection. So that's one aspect of this. When Netflix decides to really get into the streaming game, they start investing a ton of money in content. This is circa 2014, 2015. What happens is, if you look at this on any website, Netflix's uh, uh, free cash flow goes from being a relatively net positive to a net negative for many, many years. This becomes a thing that Netflix has to debate. There's five or six years where Netflix has no real good free cash flow. Mm-hmm. And what they're saying to to uh, Wall Street analysts, what they're saying to investors is, don't worry, we're going to kind of bring in this debt. Remember, at a time period when when borrowing debt was like near 0% interest right. rate, right? Like it was a perfect environment for it. We're going to borrow this debt to invest in the original content to maintain this kind of monopolized attention share of streaming attention. And this is where I'm going to put the blame. And Wall Street rewards it, right? Wall Street says this makes sense because we're watching Google and Facebook and and Apple. We're watching them kind of say the same thing. What they're doing is they're creating a lot of the devices. They're creating a lot of the operating software systems. They're creating a lot of the ecosystems for which Netflix is to thrive in. So when we get to 2016, 2017, there starts to be this pressure on the legacy media companies. And what happens to the legacy media companies? There's two pressures coming from two different directions. One is that that very nice socialistic bundle I was talking about, that 40%, that is disappearing because the technology where people are actually spending their attention is is, is disappearing. So they're seeing people move towards multiple devices, iPads. They're seeing people sign up for Netflix and they're saying, okay, there's clearly the audience, clearly the audience is moving away from this traditional pay TV bundle in its physicality, and they're kind of going towards these direct-to-consumer services. The mistake that happens, this is part one, the mistake that happens is them thinking we have on our own direct-to-consumer platforms a number of differentiated, uh, a level of differentiated content, when in fact they don't. Within the pay TV bundle, having a lack of differentiated content doesn't really matter because if you are you know, let's think about pay TV. If you're FX and someone's like, ah, FX is fine, but really I need to get Bravo. I need to get this. And in order to get Bravo or whatever it might be, right, to get USA, to get a Fox channel, might be a Fox sports channel, whatever it is, I need to have FX. So I'm going to pay for that bundle. Even if I'm not necessarily engaging with it at at the level that you might hope it, you're still going to see that affiliate revenue come in. People are still going to pick up the cable channel. And then hopefully you do get some casual viewers. Increased viewership and engagement obviously leads to higher advertising. And so if you think about how that system works, that goes away when you're now within a direct consumer service. Now, when you're saying we need every piece of content to be differentiated enough to get people to sign up and stay signed up and not churn, that's extremely difficult. So that's the first problem. The second problem is to what Jason said. Netflix was able to ride what we, you know, there's, there's a guy on, on Twitter who goes by Massas uh, on Cap, and he he works with an investment banking, and he called it Debtflix for a long time, right? He it was like a company <laughs> yep. that was high on debt and was and, and Wall Street allowed it. 
when these legacy companies, to Jason's point, are coming in and they're saying, we need a few years to really find how to, to create a profit, we're, we're really determining what this looks like. Wall Street does not give them the length of time to find this that they gave Netflix, right? And this idea is like, well, Netflix is showing profit. Netflix also capitalizes on this last year and says, we're going to change how we're reporting our earnings. We're going to focus on profit because we think you should be focused on profit, Wall Street. We think that's where it matters. Knowing full well, they're the only company globally that can actually produce profit at that level. And so now you have Wall Street saying to the big legacy companies, whoa, 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 not only are is pay TV bleeding at a faster rate. Why? Because if you launch a direct-to-consumer platform and you want that to succeed, what do you do? You basically cut your head off. And by that, I mean, you cut your arms off, you cut your legs off, you stop supplying content to the pay TV bundle. You say, we're going to move Mandalorian and all of those over here. I think it's really interesting during the strike this, like, like this, where you kind of see a lot of like the Paramounts of the world say, we're going to take some content from Paramount Plus and put on the linear side, like we, in order to kind of keep, make that feel fresh and, and, and kind of reward both agencies and in order to keep the advertising dollars flowing. So if you cut off that head, all of a sudden there's no, less reason for people to be within pay TV. So it accelerates the cutting that's happening, which decreases the affiliate revenue and the advertising money brought in on your safeguard. At the same time, when you are seeing big churn and stalling growth in high average revenue per user markets like the United States and low adoption in low uh, average, average revenue per user countries like India or, or uh, parts of the Asian Pacific region. And so all of a sudden, you've got this fun balance game that's not really working, right? You have we're losing money on the one thing that's really making us money. And at the same time, we are not making enough money at the subscriber growth level that we need to both appeal to advertisers at scale or to increase prices and drive, draw that, that average revenue per user. And so Netflix gets to benefit because they're the only ones that can do this. I think it's unfair to put the blame on Netflix because here's the other part of this conversation. There's something called the innovator's dilemma, which I'm sure many of you have have, have read the book about or you've listened to. It's a very, very famous Harvard uh, Business School study. The thing about the innovator's dilemma is that if you are Disney or Paramount or whichever company you're looking at Netflix and you're not necessarily saying, I don't want to be the next Netflix. You're saying, I don't want to be the next blockbuster. Like, I don't want to be this company that was at its very height and then all of a sudden gets wiped out by by technological innovation that we didn't catch on to. And so you say, we're going to throw all our eggs in the basket. What can't you control? You can't control Wall Street's expectations and you can't control inflation. You can't control a pandemic. And so these things happen and make any form of actual progress within the, the, the profit realm, much, 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 much more difficult. You can't borrow money to invest and you got to make money much faster. You're doing all these things. And if you're Disney or you're, these other companies, you're hoping that parks attendance stays up. You're hoping to you sell computers. If you're like, whatever it might be, you're hoping that that kind of helps to basically safeguard the investment that you're, you're putting in streaming. But I think to echo Jason and I'll end this, this rant, I think. It's unfair to say at this point, this isn't going to work. I don't, however, think it's unfair to say, is it going to work at the capacity that many of these companies think? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that that's a good point. Um, A couple of things. Innovators dilemma. I mean, the the truth of it is that for me, the innovators dilemma always was you get in a position where as a company, um, the, you, you were, you do one thing, you do what you do and you do it well. Mm-hmm. And you see, uh, an innovator coming in and you're, it's very hard to realign your priorities for the future when you have a present. And so I could argue that what all of these entertainment companies should have seen when Netflix started was 
right the the we should make a disney plus and compete with netflix should have been the reaction in 2014 or whatever to the rise of netflix right that should have been the reaction but instead it was sort of like well yeah but we got cable and we got movies and and netflix is buying some of our stuff and they give us money so we're fine and you're because that's not your core business. You're you're doing your core business and you're being successful with that. So why would you create a Netflix which is and lose a lot of money on it and it's not your business anyway? And then you you by the time you realize it is your business or it's the future of your business, you're so far behind. Mm-hmm. I I would say though that like I can't foresee a future where the direct to consumer outlets for this sort of content are just Netflix and Apple and Amazon, right? Like, and if I were a, a, a somebody with a studio and with intellectual property, that can't happen, right? Like that can't be allowed to happen that there's only one or two buyers. The more buyers, the better for my stuff, whether it's me or not, that thing needs to exist. It does not to bring back Hulu again, but it does remind me that like, uh, one of the original ideas with Hulu was just for all the broadcast networks in America to have a streaming answer. And so they pooled their resources, basically. Yeah. But I do think about like that you need if you're Disney or Warner Brothers Discovery or anybody, you need there to be more than just Netflix. Right. That's the worst thing, because then you have no leverage. They have they are the only outfit that can pass this stuff on to consumers. You they're limiting the market. It's really bad for you as a company. So they, they do need to exist. And then everybody gets in that moment where they're like, well, okay, but why don't we own it? Why don't we do it? And they create their own streaming services and everybody does that. I'm not blaming Netflix for that. I, I think Netflix is the cause because everybody got Netflix envy, yes. right? Yeah. As well as fear of the power of Netflix. And I think yeah. both of those were legitimate uh, le- legitimate reasons. It might be fairer to say that Netflix didn't lure them into the quicksand as much as Netflix had found a very safe place to stand among quicksand uh, over the course of many years and then everybody else looked over at netflix standing there and said hey let's go over there like i don't think netflix was was like whistling them on but Mm -hmm. but they stumbled into it themselves yeah and i I think you've touched on two really important things i just want to address the first one is this idea that these companies saw what Netflix was doing. And in part also, right, Jason, they 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 were helping Netflix. I mean, yes. you could argue that Netflix got to a big part of its scale because of content from all of these partners. Sure. And so but this was part of the misunderstanding, right? And Disney's kind of the perfect example because you have executives like um, Bob Iger being really vocal about it. Where there, you know, Iger again has that, I've said this on this podcast before, that very famous quote of like, we were basically selling like our, uh, weapons to a third party country. And this idea, again, not a great quote, but but this idea um, that Disney was like, we gave you the Avengers and we gave you all these movies and yeah. Pixar and you built a platform on that. The issue Netflix would say, yeah, and we gave you money for it. Right. And 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 so in this and this is the issue and and this is going to go into my second part. But the issue with that really quickly is that you think the 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 content was the main thing that subscribers will now leave for. I'm going to argue that that's probably true for a portion. But also, while Netflix is using this content to kind of build that subscriber base, Netflix is doing something very smart. What are they doing? They're borrowing a lot of money Mm -hmm. to invest in original content and say, we know you guys are eventually going to leave. Like, this is a pretty good thing we're building. We know you're going to take off. And what we want to do is learn. 
what people are interested in, what we can kind of replace it with, what we can figure out. They haven't perfected it. I would say that Netflix film division is not by Pixar by any stretch of the imagination. But if you look at the TV side, Netflix has kind of figured out patterns of behavior and what people are interested in and how can they learn from from what they can no longer license. And I think the second part, which is what Jason was saying, there is an aspect of this conversation when we talk about people mining for gold are you better to be the person mining for gold, hoping to get a nugget or the person selling the shovels, right? Like, are you, are, are you the person that's like, you're going to need a shovel if you want to try and do that. I'm going to sell you the shovel for five times what the shovel's worth because you need it, right? You sell right. me this pen, whatever it might be. In this situation, Disney, Sony, all of them are, are selling shovels, right? They're saying, you need this and I'm going to charge you a lot of money for it. Sony very famously says, we're not going to get into having to maintain the cost of a direct-to-consumer platform and additional marketing there and figuring out how to use content, especially when we can license that content for twice what it's worth. Here's where I think if you're going to be in the game of streaming and you really want to try and do it, here's where I think you have to be. A great example of something just came out um, today, Suits, which I've just gotten into. I'm sure like many, many people, actually I can prove many, many people. Suits is on Netflix after like years. It's finally on Netflix. This thing went viral on TikTok by itself. Netflix didn't promote it there, but it went viral on TikTok. People were talking about suits. Netflix very smartly put on the homepage across the United States and was like, we have all eight or nine seasons, whatever it is. Right. This is a USA network cable show that finished airing of like two years ago. years ago. Yeah. yeah. Very, like very popular procedural. It's what Meghan Markle famously was on. Then she yeah. left because she started dating Prince Harry. So there's there's all this stuff around suits. This show is like a whatever show, right? But I like to I like to talk about it because it is it is Grey's Anatomy, it is Criminal Minds, it is a situation. This show is available on Netflix and Peacock, and I was having a conversation uh, simultaneously. I was having a conversation with someone, and I said, "This is manifest for NBC all over again. This is like we had this show on Peacock for years, didn't do anything because it doesn't have the scale of Netflix, it doesn't have the reach right. of Netflix, it doesn't have the audience of Netflix." But what I would do, but Here's what I'm taking away from this conversation, from this these data sets that are coming in. And I would want to dig in more into this, of course. And I don't know the deals, the contract and all that fun stuff. But that show is doing really well for Netflix. That show is doing well for Netflix at a time of a writer and actor strike. And that show has nine seasons, nine yeah. very long seasons. And if you're Netflix, you're going, great. This is entertaining a group of people that we don't have to think about for a period of time. We might be able to delay some of our originals. We can kind of do that. If you're Peacock, you know how valuable, or not Peacock, excuse me, if you're NBC Universal, you know how valuable that show is to Netflix. Not as valuable to to, to Peacock, really, but that's going to help you potentially invest if you can raise the price of that licensing in original content that is going to maybe steal some of the viewers away from Netflix and you still have suits because you've agreed to a non-exclusive basis because that show is more important to Netflix to have than to not have. Now you can start building up your audience little by little by figuring out these licensing agreements. Jason and I have talked about this a lot in the show. The power of the legacy companies is what they gave to Netflix originally. It is their shows. The power of the legacy company is not in trying to create a distribution uh, center around these shows without any new form of entertainment. That's what Netflix's power was. Netflix did very, very good investment in entertaining. You could you could argue that it has gotten worse for them because their hit rate is down. That being said, they're at a point now where they have some, I would, I would argue, some form of control over what they want to license and they can kind of level out spending. The other players have great library, but they don't have the originals outside of Disney. And even then, it, we really just talk about Marvel and Star Wars and like Secret Invasion did not get off to a good start for, for Disney+. Plus. And so if we think about that, 
What they need is the ability to invest in differentiated content, both at the original and license level. They cannot do that with the spending level that they need to spend, even if they do it smartly, without generating additional revenue. Netflix cannot make long running shows. It's it's like a thing. They like yeah. have a huge nope. problem with it. They need the CSIs and the NCISs and the and the suits. And they know that. And so if you are holding on to those, figuring out a way to create these agreements that might give Netflix more power, but gives you the ability to invest in original content while holding on to those series as well and ensuring that as you take those subscribers away, little by little, if you can, this is the big if, if you can, now you're training the audience to say, oh, I'm coming to Peacock for this and Suits is here. And now Suits is much more important to me. This is way easier said than done. This is like extremely difficult to do, especially when Netflix has people's um, muscle memory built in and they're just opening Netflix and it's kind of the thing that everyone has and they have the, the, the free cash flow to kind of do this in a way that the other companies do not. But this is what makes it really difficult. Netflix is effectively assembling a bundle. They, they figure this out. They're like, we're making a, an entertainment bundle with different shows instead of networks, but we're recreating that experience for cheap and to relative in two relative buckets and the other ones have not learned that or if they have now they're trying to invest in differentiated content at a time when it's much more expensive uh and that's a really tough place to be in now i'm gonna i, I like your uh, selling shovels uh, metaphor a lot but i'm gonna throw in a slightly different metaphor here based on something <laughs> that you just said about this idea that, that you've got this content on peacock which is the the owner of the content and then but it's also on netflix and netflix is really good at finding an audience for it and I, the way i i have been thinking about it um a little bit is having an outlet store versus working with a real retailer yes so the outlet store is your brand right so it's like all nike shoes like you make the you're you the factory you make the nike shoes you sell them at the outlet store it's your brand uh that's nbc universal or disney or whoever it's like it's a brand we make all this stuff and then you can come here and see it okay that's good but the retailer is where people live and it's it's where people shop because they get everything because they don't just want your brand they want a bunch of different stuff some people love your brand and they'll come to the outlet store but the the retailer the walmart the the what you know whatever you want to be the shopping mall it's it's got uh everything it's and it knows how to market it and it knows what people in different regions want to buy and it puts it's doing the equivalent of netflix's interface they have end caps they have sales they know where to put the you know which ones are at eye level and which ones aren't they put the milk in the back of the store if it's a grocery store right like all of that is the retailer thinking about it holistically and and i keep coming back to this idea that I understand why everybody looked at the success of a retailer and said, oh, geez, we should also be a retailer. And that might not be true. But I think what is true is you can't just have one store. Right. And and so I, I think like there need to be competitors to Netflix. And I know how expensive that is, but like it's not in anybody's best interest for there to be Netflix and then sort of like nothing else or almost nothing else. I do wonder sometimes if the fast services that we've talked about. Uh, like your Pluto TVs of the world, if they are the other strong retailers, ultimately. And then yeah. and then when you talk about non-exclusivity, I think the idea of also being able to shop by brand, shop at the outlet, shop for the stuff that you really care about is 
viable, but not necessarily the way that they were thinking, which is the only place you can ever buy Nikes is at the outlet, at the Nike outlet store. It's like, no, that doesn't actually make sense. You need to be where people live. And that's Netflix or something else like Netflix. And I don't know, you know, I don't know how this ends and whether uh, a couple of these companies end up being both and having some success or they merge things together or they bundle their streaming services together or what. But like, it's a really interesting dichotomy to watch this idea of, uh, you know, am I trying to create a direct to consumer product that is everything that I make versus something like Netflix that, as you said, is kind of its own bundle because it's getting stuff from all over and then it's got the volume to drive. I mean, it is like the Walmart of streaming. It can drive (laughs) something like suits and suddenly everybody's talking about suits and NBC's over on the side counting its money from Netflix. Yes. But also saying like, geez, we had that on Peacock for years and nobody watched it. And now everyone's talking about suits now. It's but it's exactly that. I mean, this is like the conversation that I have with a lot of different executives at different companies. And and the, the they not many of them aren't asking, should we have had Squid Game? Because I don't think anyone would have bought Squid Game. It didn't it didn't make sense for their businesses. The question I get asked a lot is, would it have worked for us if we had had right. that? And the answer is always no. The answer is like no, because no one's. I like your I like your 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 wholesaler versus retailer as well. Yeah, partly because it's like. Are you how many aisles are you browsing? Right. Like how many aisles are you walking down? You're kind of like, oh, this is interesting. I do that. When I go to Target, I look at things and I'm sure that there's this is anecdotal to so many people. I look for things and buy things that I didn't even know I needed yep, or wanted. Totally. I'm like, 100%. well, now I'm just exploring this. I'd leave I'd leave Target every time with new candles. Do I need new candles? Yeah. Nope. But I'm like, I'll smell the candles. And if I'm going though to like the Lego store, right? Like this is another if I'm going to Lego store, I'm looking for a very specific thing. I'm not really perusing. I'm like, where's this thing I'm going to get? I know what I want and I will spend money for it. But I'm not going to the Lego store that often. I am going to Target, which has Lego. Yeah, pretty often and walking down those aisles anyways. And so I think there is that that question of like, what do you need your shows to do? Which is, again, I break it down into three buckets, acquisition, retention and engagement. That central one being very important to the advertising tiers. Um, And so each show, ideally, you have a show that does all three. Right. And a show that does all three would kind of be like like a Game of Thrones type show. Uh, But but one that does, you know, kind of retention would be like your Big Bang Theory. But the idea of like, what do you need in this moment? I would argue Netflix right now needs a lot of high engagement shows because they're trying to sell this to advertisers. They're trying to be like, look at all these shows that people are watching again and again and again. It's why you hear Ted Sarandos on the last call say we, you know, streaming is 37 percent of all viewership or no larger than that. Excuse me. In, in the United States or close. I think it's about 37, 38, 39 percent. You know, we're 8.8 percent of that. We're the largest just outside of YouTube and YouTube is not comparable to us. Like you hear him kind of speak that language. In those calls, when he would speak to investors and shareholders on Wall Street, now he's speaking to advertisers as well. And he's saying, we have this engagement. So you're looking at what shows do that. A show like Suits, a show like Manifest are going to be highly, highly more engaging uh, in terms of on a consistent basis, on a long-term basis, and on a long, uh, a per usage basis than a Wednesday, which is going to be a high acquisition title. You bring people in, and then who might watch Suits? And so I think there are these questions that are that are happening at Netflix and everyone's kind of looking at Netflix and is like, how does a lot of this work out for them? How does an ad tier work out for them? Does it work? Or have you trained consumers enough to just say, I'd rather have two services with no ads than five services with ads? Like, I, like I'd rather just not deal with that. And if you have, how does that affect stuff? You know, are people willing to pay 
the paid sharing? Are they willing to say, yes, I will pay $8 or whatever it is, $7 a, a month because I want access to this? Or is it, no, I don't really need that. I'll sign up when I want to and then cancel. Like I don't, it doesn't matter to me. All of these questions, I imagine a lot of the legacy companies alongside trying to figure out what to license are kind of like, let's see what happens while also being in that space. Like we're in the ad space too, we're figuring it out, but trying to see how consumers conditioning has changed since Netflix led everyone kind of to this beach into this water. And now they're all, you know, kind of waiting in the deep end. Right. I, and I, I just make a little footnote about when you look at Apple TV plus, right, which is a case where they're buying shows from studios it's, and they're, they're doing their own curation They're They're not producing those shows, but they are building something, a product out of those shows that, that, that is a retail kind of environment. Prime video is like that too. I mean, boy, what's more retail than Amazon.com in some ways? Um, and then they both have their channels offerings, which they're basically reselling. It's very, very close to being perilously close to being a bundle, a cable bundle, because they're reselling HBO Max and or Max and and Paramount Plus and things like that. So um, I don't know. We I, this is the I just I, I think I thought I wanted to talk about that on this level, because sometimes we talk about like this news or that news or this news. And, and this was a good like this is the one of the, the biggest questions of this moment in this field is is exactly this, which is what's the right model for these companies? And is Netflix, everybody tried to be Netflix. It's like, hmm, maybe you don't want to be Netflix. Maybe you can't be Netflix. Maybe that's okay. Yeah. But you can just be you as long as you make Wall Street happy. Well, there's that. You see, we're, we are, you were almost like becoming Mr. Rogers there and then you went the other way and then you mentioned Wall Street. You had to bring Wall Street into it. You had to bring money into I it. I live in New York. This is it. I did, it's, I'm it. reminded of it. Uh, I get it. All right. Um, we have um, much more to talk about on this episode. Um, There's a full episode for everybody. So uh, much more to come. Uh, but first, I want to tell you about our sponsor. That's right. We have a sponsor. Um. This episode of Downstream is brought to you by Factor. It is the thick of summer, especially if you live where Julia does, and it's actually hot outside. You might be looking for wholesome, convenient meals to support your sunny, active days. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, and it can help you fuel up fast with flavorful and nutritious ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track reaching your goals. I have been trying uh, Factor meals. They've sent me a couple of boxes. The thing that really strikes me about it is the quality of the ingredients. These are very high-quality ingredients. Uh, I got a veggie box. The veggies were really great. I got one with a chicken meal in it chicken and veggies. Uh, the sauce was good. The chicken was excellent. Sometimes I, I have had meal boxes with sort of sketchy chicken, but the chicken in the factor boxes was just perfect. Um, chicken breast, like absolutely perfect. Well done. They are not skimping on the quality of their ingredients. And of course you can skip that extra trip to the grocery store. They're fresh, never frozen meals already in just two minutes. And you can treat yourself to more than 34 different weekly restaurant quality options, including uh, just going to make your mouth water here. Bruschetta, shrimp risotto. Oh, any risotto will make me happy. Green goddess chicken, grilled steakhouse filet mignon. Those are just three of the 34. You can also keep your energy up with lunch to go. Factors effortless wholesome meals like grain bowls and salad toppers. No microwave required at all for those. Factor also offers options to fit a variety of lifestyles. There are keto items, calorie smart items, vegan and veggie, protein plus. And then there are more than 45 add-ons, including some breakfast items like apple cinnamon pancakes, bacon and cheddar egg bites 
bites and smoothies. And rest assured you are making a sustainable choice because Factor offsets 100% of their delivery emissions to your door along with sourcing renewable electricity and featuring sustainably sourced seafood. Head to factormeals.com slash downstream50 and use the code downstream50 to get 50% off your first box. That's code downstream 5050 at factor slash downstream 50 to get 50% off your first box. Thank you to factor for their support of downstream and all of relay FM. Okay, Julia, our second topic in this episode, it's two big topics today is Bob Iger. Now, okay. Bob mm-hmm. is, Bob is but a man, but he has also many topics into unto himself. Um, item number one, Bob's not leaving. Now, no one should be surprised by this. He signed that two-year deal and said, oh, after two years, I'll retire and I'll have a successor. Well, guess what? We're not even close to a year in and he has extended the deal for two more years. Any, like, I, I, I will pause here for you to comment on anything that you can about this. Um, pretty much exactly how we thought this would go, right? <laughs> Yeah, there's literally like I think we were making jokes about this on the podcast that we were kind of just like, and there's no way he's going to. I mean, he, I, I think also, can I just say it's very, very interesting. And I'm curious in your thoughts, Jason. I think it's very concerning that they looked around and were like, we don't really have anyone that's going to replace. Part of this, of course, is like the shareholders love Bob. The media loves Bob. The Wall Street loves Bob. Everyone is like, we feel good about Iger. They're in a very transient, concerning time. You don't want to, you know, take off your star quarterback when you're down, you know, two touchdowns. Like we, we, we get where that's coming from. At the same time, there is this concern that you're like, the last successor he picked didn't really turn out that great. Right. It doesn't feel like there's anyone within the Disney organization currently that would be great to take over the business. And I think if you're looking outside the organization, you know, there's all these rumors. And I would say jokes at this point about Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, taking over Disney. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I think your best bet is kind of a duo CEO in the form of like Tom Staggs, Kevin Mayer, both who used to be executives at Disney, now are the heads of Candle Media, um, who kind of understand the businesses and can do it at that high level. Because when you look at who he has, Dana Walden, Jimmy Pitaro, uh, Josh DeMauro, uh, you know, these are people who are heads of ESPN and Disney Television Group. I think, yeah, Disney Television Group, Alan Bergman over on the film side of Josh DeMauro's Parks. They're all really talented. It's not that they couldn't do the job, but the thing with CEO in a company like Disney is like, do you want to partake in the fights with with Ron DeSantis? Do you want to be having those government conversations? Do you, if you're Dana Walden and you love being in the Hollywood side of things, do you care about what's happening in Florida with the parks or like in France with the park? Like, is that something that you really want to take on? And I think it's really difficult to find CEOs who fit that bill. Um, and I'm just before I hand it over to you, I'm going to say my personal choice. For someone who I think would be really great at running Disney, although she runs into the same issues as, as potentially Dana Walden, Donna Langley, who is the head of uh, NBC Universal's film division. I think they made her chief content officer, like all the other chief content officers around Hollywood these days. But I, I, I think she, she's got the Universal side right. She, she, so she knows the parks a little bit. She understands the importance of franchises. She's the only executive to have launched successful franchises on the film side in like the last five, six, seven years. Um, and so I think. She would be really great, but I don't think she'll be leaving NBC Universal anytime soon. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think um, first step in accepting 
Bob Iger's <laughs> Bob Iger's tenure uh, the second time around is to accept that he doesn't really want to go anywhere. Um, he's kind of gotten over the idea that he's going to be forced to retire. And so he's got a little time, but you're right. It, it, this is a very difficult succession planning here is going to be very difficult. And either he needs, I mean, the advantage of this is he's got basically three years to recruit somebody and say, I am really going to leave in three years this time and I need to get you up to speed. But they've got to find somebody to do that. That either needs to be an outside hire or maybe a purchase of some company that brings along with it an executive who is uh, very, has a lot of potential. Um, But he's got to do something. But certainly I think right now they don't want to change from Bob Iger, they brought him back and there's a lot going on. It's very dramatic. He needs to rethink the business. He's going to need more time for that. But uh, he's got a, you know, he's been bad at succession planning. So we'll see (laughs) if if this time for sure, he's like, no, 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 I really want to retire now in three years. (laughs) He uh, wants to be on his yacht. And who will be- who will believe him? But I mean, at some point, I, I do believe at some point he does really want to retire. Uh, maybe this time will be so hard on him that he'll be like, yeah, I, I want to go now. Uh, whereas last time it felt a little bit like he they they all just said, well, you're you're you aged out. This is what we do here. And he didn't really want to go. But that was the rule. And now they're like, we don't care. Stay as long as you like. And you're like, all right, but I don't want to stay that long. Jason, I'm. I'm curious. I know this isn't necessarily on our sheet, but I think it might be interesting to people listening. And I'm curious in your thoughts on this. One of the reasons you keep someone like Iger around is Iger notoriously for the 15 years of his first tenure. Very, very, very media savvy, very good at playing the press, very good at yeah. working with artists, very good at, you know, at, at being kind of, I always refer to him jokingly as like Uncle Bob, right? Like the guy, like you kind of, even if you don't like executives, like you kind of trust Bob Iger. And oh, two weeks ago now at this point, I believe, there was that, maybe last week, there was that CNBC interview yeah. where Bob Iger was asked about the strike that is now both the WGA and SAG-AFTRA. And he made... Some, I would argue, tone deaf comments, comments that I would not have been surprised to have heard from like a John Malone, David Zaslav type. Yeah. But very, very surprised to hear from from an Iger type. And I was just curious if you had any thoughts on oh, on kind of that interview. It, it, I mean, he really stepped in it, didn't he? The um, you've got the writers and, and you know, bravo to I mean, they're actors. They're good at performing. Bravo to Fran Drescher for <laughs> It, it, who who heads SAG AFTRA for um, stepping forward immediately and basically saying, "How dare you, sir!" Right, and 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 showing this sort of like we're we are losing money, uh, you know, right? We're we're losing our livelihood here to stand up for the importance of the long term of our business and and for the people who create what is the asset here. And Bob Iger chose to give an interview at one of these rich people's retreats, one of these billionaire business people retreats where he is, you know, in his nice suit and he's uh, hanging out with all the rich people. And what he says is pretty condescending because he decided to give the party line of like, it's ridiculous. Uh, They don't even know what they're asking for. And it was very, it was just, it, it was not something... I understand it from a negotiation standpoint, but from a uh, visual standpoint, for t- if you're the guy who like gets it, that is not what you do. And it puts him on, you know, maybe he felt a lot of pressure. He's under a lot of pressure from the board. He's under a lot of pressure to turn Disney around. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I mean, 
maybe don't say anything at all rather than be put in, in, in a position like that because the the rest of the, the unions have made hay with that. And I think it's just the, the more people that it gets on the side of the unions because there is already, I think, from a lot of people, this perspective that I, I know that there are, are these companies are losing money and there are challenging times, but they're also worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. And the executives are paid handsomely, including Bob Iger. And yet you've also got working, everyday working actors and writers who are saying, I just want to be able to pay my rent and uh, put my kid, save money for my kid to go to college. And that's when, when you pit that against the guy in the nice suit, who's at a resort with billionaires, it doesn't, it's not great. It's not great. You know, and you know what's, what I thought was, because I agree with everything you're saying, like everything. And I thought you just an experiment for our listeners at home. If if you were representing a company, right? So you're, you're Bob Iger. You were asked about the strike. I bet if you were given a minute to think of an answer, it would be something along the lines of we're just really big fans of content, of entertainment, of film and TV. And we're hoping to come together with the actors and the writers who we value dearly uh, and come to some form of agreement in the uh, in the short term, I would use the word I, fair is what I would use. Right. I would fair. use the word fair, which is we have a, the economic model is changing and it's caused a lot of issues for us. We've lost money. It's, the, you know, the, we are having questions about where the future is going to go. But we value the creative people, the writers, the actors. We value them. And I hope we can co- find a way to have come together to find a fair way for us all to succeed in this business. Right. That that that's how you. You do it right and so jason and i in the last 30 <laughs> seconds have come up with a, a statement that any type of a person listening to this would probably be along those lines most executives are it's an easy answer i have heard from a lot of people uh, of, in the Iger defender camp of this situation that he was on cnbc and he was speaking to wall street and shareholders here's my pushback on that and this is going to be very blunt and probably not very pretty to hear for, for for a lot of the creatives but but here's why i don't buy that answer and why i think it was wrong across the board if you look at a lot of these companies if you look at disney and comcast and um even to an ex- even to an extent paramount if you look at all these companies the shareholders and like netflix don't care about the strike like they're kind of like it's going to be figured out if you're disney what's going on with parks and media like that's your big side of the business like the linear networks if you're comcast the reason why nbc universal is hardly ever broken out with, with earnings and with the analysts is because they're they care about like how many uh, internet packages are you selling yeah. what like what are the phones like like or and what was when at&t <laughs> owned warner it was that was the question so the idea and that's why i push back on it it's not to say that the strike doesn't matter because of course it does and i'm going to get to that right now but the idea that you're speaking to shareholders who care about the strike. They don't. They're kind of like they'll care if it impacts films in the, like, the next two, three quarters. Then they'll be like, OK, well, how's that? But even then, they're kind of like, how's parts doing? Like our sports back. How are sports doing in the media bundle where you're making the vast majority of your revenue? And so the reason I push back is because if you're Bob Iger, the thing you care about post strike is relationships with the people in the community yeah. that you're talking to. And so, and they remember these things. You know who's, you know who gave a great answer? It was a ham of an answer, but it was a great answer. Ted Sarandos on his earnings call when he was like, I came from a union household. I have this story about my dad in a union and mm. I support the unions. That's all, even if Ted Sarandos is like, 
this strike is great for us. And I don't think that's true. That's another thing that goes around lately. And it's just (laughs) not true at all. But at least it's the answer you give to creatives. So so the thing about Iger's answer, too, that makes it not make any sense for Wall Street is and look. I I suspect that he was speaking out of a level of frustration from the yeah. perspective of a negotiation because you also don't say to your um, investors, oh, their demands are ridiculous because yeah. the truth is what's going to happen in the end. You're not going to break the union. You're not in the end. You're going to compromise and you're going to give them stuff. So to sell it as, Oh, their demands are ridiculous. What you're kind of telling wall street is when we settle this, it'll pretty much go our way. And that's not going to happen because it's a negotiation. And so it, it came more across as being that he was doing some of the negotiation, which is you say, everything's ridiculous until you have to come together. It was the wrong time and place to do that. The only part of that interview, and Jason and I are going to get into it for the last little bit of this podcast, that Wall Street cared about, and you know how I know this, because these were the headlines that were from Wall Street blogs and not from entertainment blogs, which focused on his comments about the strike, were, was Iger going, everything is basically yeah, up for grabs Strategic partners point. selling stuff, and, we're, we're, and we we are absolutely uh, going to get to that. That's that's my third bullet, bullet point in the man, the myth, the topic, Bob. <laughs> Iger. That was good. Did you just come up with I, that? I, yeah. I, I have letters. We, I have letters for us to talk about. We're not going to even get to that many letters because so much Netflix and so much Bob Iger. So, so yeah, you wrote a piece uh, called uh, the Iger streaming uh, beta blocker. Very funny. Um, about like, it's it's your advice, right? It's like, hey, Bob, it's Julia here. I got some advice for you. And it and it dovetails with a lot of the things that he said, because the big thing, I agree that he said there after he infuriated the unions in an own goal that he shouldn't have was the news where they said, what about the future of ESPN? And he's like, yeah, everything's on the table. What, what we'd really like to get is a strategic partner. Um, and when they said, is ABC core to your business? He's like, no, <laughs> what, what it's not. I mean, it, it, there's a lot going on there. Um, and, you know what and, the best part of yeah. that whole thing was? Here's here's another interactive for, for listeners at home. Let's say you had spent the last year, you have a best friend, and you, you've been saying to your best friend, once every three months, you say to them, this thing I've got, man, I have this lawnmower. This lawnmower is, is total crap. This lawnmower doesn't do anything for me. No one's even coming to look at this lawnmower. It doesn't do its job, but, you know, but it's my lawnmower. You see this once every three months. Then... At the end of that year, you turn to your buddy and you go, man, I got this lawnmower. Yeah. Do you want to take it off my hands? Because I think I think you could maybe use this lawnmower. Who in their right mind is buying ABC after Bob Iger has said and the rest of them for a year, year and a half that the linear is whatever. There's mm-hmm. no attention on it. The, the content itself is, is, is basically been uh, removed to, in order to go to streaming. The answer, my friends, is if you've paid attention to the newspaper industry and the media industry is private equity. Yeah. Like that, you, What you see happen is a private equity firm or multiple firms go in, scrap it for parts, see yep. what they can do with it, run it until it's basically just not doing anything at all. And then you kind of get rid of it. And the idea, though, like it was just one of those moments. And I said this and I'm a huge fan of Bob Iger's tenure, someone who studies a lot of these business moves and someone who studies this industry like Iger is near the top of of really smart, really great executives. I just truly admire him. 
But I listened to that interview and I was like, where is a lot of this coming from? Like, like how, why would you position it this way? The only thing that made sense to me, and I want to get your opinion on it, Jason, was the uh, ESPN strategic yeah. partner. I was like, that's a good place to, to say, like, we're looking for someone to kind of come in, partner on ESPN, figure that out because it's a really strong asset for us. Super, super strong way to do that. But I'm curious, what were your thoughts on the ABC FX side of the equation, Jason, and like ESPN side? Yeah, well, ESPN side, strategic partner, very interesting, right? I, it feels to me like he's, I read that as that he's been talking, right? Yeah. Like I read that as that we have we have been talking to people who might uh, partner with us on ESPN. And, you know, there was speculation that it might be a league, right? It might be like the NBA or something. Speculation that might be Apple which is an interesting idea since Apple is very interested in sports. Would that be, there's a lot of talk. I'll tell you as somebody who covers Apple, that there has been a lot of talk behind the scenes. And I don't know whether it's just talk or whether there's something there that the tight relationship yeah. between Apple and Disney that goes back to Steve Jobs selling Pixar to Disney and being on their board, but continues to this day, including Bob Iger standing up at the uh, Apple Vision Pro launch event at their developer conference and saying, we'll be there on day one um, for this amazing revolutionary product, right? Like I, there is constant speculation about Apple and Disney doing business together. And the question is, is that real or not? But like, what would that be? And is that Apple buys Disney? Is that Apple buys part of Disney? And and so when Bob Iger says strategic partner, I think a lot of our ears perked up and we're like, hmm, hmm, is that Apple? Is that Apple saying, let's, let's go into business together on sports, on live sports, instead of it just being Apple? What if it, ESPN was a business that Apple and uh, and Disney were working on together? I think it's possible. Um, it could also be a league, uh, as we detailed on this podcast before and will again, there are lots of issues with going off of that linear cable money at cold Turkey and finding a new source. But at the same time, if you look at all the cuts that they've been making on ESPN and layoffs, it's all in the shoulder programming because the truth is what really matters is live sports. Live sporting events are where the money is and they will continue to have value. So on the ABC and FX side, I'm sort of with you. Like FX is a brand that I, I feel like that they might want to maintain that as a brand that's feeding into their streaming service, uh, whether it's Disney Plus or Hulu or some combination thereof. ABC, local TV. Like I think what we've what we have said here on this podcast is local TV channels and broadcast TV networks have value. They help generate, they're a place for you to sell your content. Uh, they're a place to generate lots and lots of episodes of things. And then that's valuable because you can take that sitcom or uh, procedural and uh, then make more money on it on Netflix or on your own streaming service. So there's value there. So there's, there's some money to be made there, but I think the question is like, do they need to be in that business or can they sell to that business again? Like let somebody else run the retail store. And I don't know enough about like how Fox is doing with its local channels. Cause that was the part of the business that Disney didn't buy a Fox. In addition to Fox news, they didn't buy the local channels or the TV network. I, I don't know. I, I look at all the different broadcast TV networks in America and I think, I don't know if there are enough buyers for all of them. Right? Do you know who I, I was having this conversation with someone and I kind of threw this out there as like a, what if thought. And originally I was like, what a dumb thought I've just had, but now I'm thinking on it and I still don't think it's smart, but I do think it's less 
dumb than interesting. <laughs> so there's a little bit of uh, self-deprecation there. But but I've been thinking about this and I was like, local is still very important. Local networking will change. The, it, I mean, by that, it's like how I said at the beginning of this podcast, like the, in terms of how we literally think about the transmission, that will change. Like like we talked about this with RSNs and local. Right. Like that itself will, will change. But local is still important. And I was thinking about like who's important, like who, who would local be important to? If you take away the the owning of the channel, and do you know who I thought of immediately? Amazon. I was huh. like, because you can hyper target your your retail side. You can be like, if you're selling, if you were to partner with, let's say, uh, the NFL, you're what well, they do, right? You own Thursday night games. You're carrying the Bengals. If you're kind of broadcasting in local markets, you kind of take on the role of RSNs in, in some capacity or whatever it might be. And now you can hyper target. And I'm so sorry to anyone listening from Cincinnati. I don't know what your major export is. I'm going to come across very dumb. Let's say your major export is like uh, some kind of agriculture, like some form of agriculture there. You can almost hyper target the retail side of it. Do you know what I mean? And like hyper target the events. Like, like you can do a lot there where if you're Amazon and your goal is to kind of create this ecosystem flywheel of like you're watching stuff that's really interesting to you, like the Bengals, um, even though Joe, Joe Burrows may be hurt and that broke my heart today. But you're watching the Bengals play and then you are shot. You're seeing ads for hyper local stuff. You know, it's kind of like how Instagram is really good at advertising because they know you really well. If you're Amazon, that means more to you, I think, than a lot of the other traditional carriers. Uh, and so I was thinking about that and I was like, maybe Amazon starts exploring local, but it would not be the way that we think of local. It's not like a transmission of like they own now, you know, uh, the, the RSN. It's not like they're getting into that world. They don't want anything to do, I think, with linear television, nor does the uh, FTC, I think, want them to have anything to do with right. linear television. But this idea of like, how do you keep localized interest up within sports and all of that and also target the right ads and increase your goods retail business. And I was like, Amazon's not a bad company. To, they've already got the infrastructure for it. But uh, whether or not that happens, I don't know. I was just thinking about this with ESPN because I was like, what does that do to, like, let's say ESPN teams up with some of these leagues or, or whoever it is or Apple. How does that impact the locality of certain games? How does that impact the national um kind of draws of certain games and what the, and where that looks like I think that's really if I'm on the league side I'm really curious about that because if I'm a league my bigger concern with the transient moment is uh longevity of reach and longevity of like the fandom within the league and so it's kind of like what does splitting things up or, or what does splitting up partners or what or, or who has you know stronger ownership like what does that look like for the league long term and short term in terms of mm -hmm. both revenue and reach like, it's a question I've been thinking about a little bit. Um, and so I think that'll be interesting to see play out. And I think ESPN kind of sits at the center of it because what happens with ESPN will reverberate yeah. uh, around. And and so that, to me, is the most interesting part of Disney. Like, the parks are fun, and they'll figure out streaming. I'm not too worried about it. They'll, they'll, they've got enough IP that they can create differentiated content. I think they've got the right foothold in partnerships with apple on the the game the gaming and the tech front and they and ea with the games and, and so there's there's aspects to their business that i think will will continue to be strong enough to get them through to this moment with dtc but espn is like fascinating because because of what it represents now um before we move on just a couple of your other 
bits of advice from Bob Iger. One, mm-hmm. one we've touched on before a lot here, but it's worth at least mentioning again. You say the value of a simple unified direct-to-consumer product. And this is the idea that although they've got the bundle right now and they've got ESPN Plus in the bundle, but it includes it's you know a little bit of live sports, but mostly not the live sports that are on ESPN. It's some fringe sports and also some you know other content, the you know Peyton's Places and all of those kinds of shows. Uh, but they also have Hulu. They got to figure out how to how they're going to deal with Hulu. And so you mm-hmm. make the case that like get an answer, make it simple, create a, create a a direct to consumer product, and and don't make it complicated like it is now. Bundle, bundle it, bundle, bundle it, it, bundle it, bu- yep. bundle it beyond Disney. But like I I I don't know if they there's a lot of ego in the rooms with and so I'm someone who works with our company on we examine potential. Um, you know, acquisitions, like I look at a lot of that. We haven't done any, but you're, you're always talking to people. And so I spend a lot of time evaluating, um, you know, these types of deals. The biggest issue always outside of the financial side, outside of the legal side, the biggest issue is always ego. It's always ego. And so it's the idea of like, if they could get over their ego, the idea of working with a Comcast or a Paramount and kind of yeah. saying, let's figure out entertainment and sports in a way that almost re- recreates this socialized bundle that we had, but also, you know, really leans into the distribution format of tomorrow and kind of positions us, which, by the way, is what Jason was talking about with the original Hulu thought that was like we all in a part of it. They could just never agree on anything. So it, 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 it like confused consumers. But this is the idea of like part of the reason the TV everywhere tv anywhere like part of the reason that failed was because consumers don't want multiple apps they want the but that's why the television system worked like this pay tv system they want one area they're willing to pay for it especially if they have access to certain sports or entertainment whatever it is create take, remove some of the biggest players like if you remove netflix and you remove amazon and you remove apple and you say like we're going to hyper focus on creating something within us because we have these long-standing contracts with leagues and because we have all these long-running programs you can create something that actually does scale well and reduces some of the cost. I don't know if it's going to happen. I, there's also reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. You can get into that. You could do a whole back and forth on why or not, why they should or why they not. But it's like just bundle, at least start with the Disney side and bundle it. Like just put it all in one app and, and just go from there. Yeah. And consider bundles, including with the competition. I think that's good. Uh, and then your last note about this was just uh it's a topic we're going to come back to it it's been on my evergreen list for a while now which is get rethink gaming or get a gaming strategy because the video game industry is enormous and it's very important and not only is it enormous but also disney has all this intellectual property and yet they have never really gotten it together in terms of a gaming strategy they've 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 failed multiple times it's bob Iger's self-professed biggest failure and i think the only thing i'll say to us because i know we are running over time the only thing i'll say is if you ask a lot of people where the best Marvel and Star Wars stories are being told, majority I say well, I would say I would say gaming. Like majority would be like, oh, the Star Wars games, like the Fallen Jedi games, a lot of what the Marvel games are doing with partners at EA and everywhere are phenomenal. Like they're so well done, and that's great for it keeping the brand alive. But that doesn't necessarily reflect on the storylines that Disney has on the passive entertainment side, and so you're just benefiting. EA and obviously EA is willing to pay for the licensing. Like obviously they're like, this is great. Like we want access to it. But if you're Disney and you can't do this because the market cap just wouldn't allow you to, but like having an EA, right? Why do you think like 
Microsoft and Xbox buy a bunch of game studios. It's like having access to it and then being able to sell that for additional content and turn it into this beautiful flywheel, which by the way, Warner Brothers Discovery has done better than absolutely anyone, which gives credit to Warner Media uh, who and, and Warner Brothers before that, uh, which was Turner, like they figured that out really well. Like they, like that's, that's what they figured out. You got it. Like the Harry Potter stuff, Lord of the Rings. It's just, it's really rough seeing Disney be the king of IP across all these areas. And then the one area where usage is going up tremendously every single year, where consumer attention is going up every single year, where spending is going up every single year, they don't actually own. And so I think that's something that they should reconsider. I don't know if Iger will do it. I think Iger's kind of like, I've done this before and it's been my failure and he's self-professed to it. He's very much like, I'm aware of this. And so I think it'll be whoever he brings in. But that's why I hope whoever he brings in has interest in gaming and is like, we need to figure this out. Right. Exactly. All right. Before we go, uh, I want to blow through some letters because I think we've got some letters that we can actually answer pretty quickly. From Rick, you guys keep referencing about how streaming is less profitable than cable was. It seems true, but can you explain why? It seems like a straightforward shift from one subscription model to another. Is it just the streaming subs aren't big enough yet? Or is it the cost of running streaming platform distribution is so much higher than cable was? Rick, the the short version, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Julia, the short version is that you used to be able to get money for every single cable subscriber for whatever your product was. So you would hold the cable company hostage for ESPN because you can't have cable and not have ESPN. And they would also be able to say, and you can't get ABC shows without ESPN. You can't get any of these other things. you got to buy it from us. And every single person who had cable would pay $8 for ESPN, whether they used it or not. A direct-to-consumer ESPN is never going to be able to match that because instead of having 100% of the cable market, they're going to have some subset of that plus the cord cutters, but it's never – the math won't ever pencil out. To ver- versus 100% of all cable in the U.S. where almost everybody has cable. So that's the that's the core problem there is that it's just it's a different model because you can't bundle your content in with something else and get paid for, you know, paid by somebody who's your, not your customer, but they're still paying you. 100% spot on. Think of it in uh, the form of a gas station, a deli, convenience store, whatever you want to call it. You go in, you buy uh, the, uh, a Mars bar. You pay tax on that Mars bar, but also every other chocolate bar on that shelf is collecting tax, even if you didn't buy them. They're collecting tax because they're offered in the same row in the same place. If that Mars bar were suddenly to say, screw you guys, I don't need you anymore. I'm going to go be sold by myself. Now it's collecting tax whenever it's bought, but it's probably bought at less frequency because it's no longer within all the other ones. And it's no longer collecting the tax that even if someone were to buy uh, a different type of chocolate bar or different type of candy, it was collecting tax on. So think of what I refer refer to it as a socialistic system. A lot of people refer to pay TV as as a tax system, but it's that idea. It's that you are no longer collecting free money for simply existing. And to Jason's point about ESPN, because you wanted more people to buy different like aspects of your channels, that's why ESPN has like six different offshoots. It was yeah. like ESPN one through nine thousand because they could collect on it, and you could create sell the bundle at a much higher amount. So even if no one watched it, you were collecting an insane amount of affiliate revenue, and you could sell uh, advertising blocks on the ESPN. 
uh, channels. And so you just can't do that in DTC. You don't have the scale, you don't have the partnerships, and you don't have the infrastructure. Yeah. And if you say, well, why didn't the cable company just uh, say, no, 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 we're going to make it that you you have to buy ESPN separately as part of the bundle? The answer is that they that, that was a po- strict policy of ESPN was we yeah. got to be everywhere and otherwise it's no deal. And they knew you can't not offer ESPN if you're going to offer a cable TV package. And so they really had them over a barrel and this is the result. But it, great a great business, as Julia was saying earlier, a great business to be in if you can be in it. But the that uh, those subscriptions are fading away and they need to find a way to reach the people who won't pay them anymore. And the math is just really different for that. Um, okay, this one's from Chris. Help, my partner and I are huge fans of the TV show House and have been happily Same. re-watching episode by episode on Amazon Prime. It's never lupus, by the way. It's never um, lupus. However, suddenly now it's a buy-only option and is no longer streaming for free. Is this likely to happen with other shows too? It seems only Amazon has this mix of free and purchase shows. Side note, which makes Amazon Super Prime or Amazon Prime super confusing to use. Totally. Uh, but more importantly, do you think it will ever come back? Okay. Apple actually does something similar, but the TV Plus is separate. But in the TV app, you do sometimes search for things and find things for rent or sale instead of for watching on TV plus because they mix and match. But Amazon is the worst at it of all of them. Um, Unfortunately, this is the vagaries of contracts and things coming uh, and going. I would say justwatch.com is my favorite uh, website for finding out where is that show right now. I put house into justwatch.com today and it's on Peacock still. So That's your other option is get Peacock because it's still there, but it has come. What what you're seeing is basically, I know it seems like they've converted it to pay-per-view, but what really happened is the free streaming contract ended, but they still have an a la carte sale version of everything because everything's for sale, just like it, just like Apple sells it. You can buy those episodes. And into your question, Chris, about uh, you said it seems like this only happens with Amazon to what Jason was saying and like why it happens on Apple, too, is because they have uh, marketplaces so right. they they're, can they're, sell. Yeah, they're not just a streaming service. They're also an yeah. a la carte sale and rental of movies and TV shows. And and they they I think they think they benefit it. Right. Right. Because they think you start watching House and then suddenly it's only for sale and you buy it. Right. I think that that's what they're thinking is, oh, we just convert them to a buyer and then you'll own it. And when when you own it, I mean, you don't really own it. But let's just say generally, if you buy it, they aren't going to take it away from you. Even if it goes off their service, your download remains. I've had this happen with some iTunes purchases where where that you still you can still get it because the contract, they might not be able to offer it anymore, but everybody who's bought it still gets it. Yeah, they, that's a good point. They they benefit from the channels. So if you subscribe to stars through Prime, it means you'll likely open Prime more. So like that, and they generate revenue from it. So, and they take part of that ad inventory. So they do actually like that helps Amazon more than it would arguably help stars, even from a scale perspective. Um, and to, to Jason's point, when they disappear on Hulu or Netflix, like there's no a la carte, there's no marketplace. And so that's why it just disappears. Like that's why there are articles of like, where is Harry Potter? Yeah. It's like, it just, it just disappears on Amazon. They want to keep your attention. And so they're like, hey, we'll sell you a season of the show for like 19 bucks or 10 bucks or whatever it is. And you can just have it and you use it here. Um, and so that's kind of their hope is that you, you are late. And I use the term lazy because I'm using it for myself here is that you're lazy enough to just not want to do that and sign up for another service or go somewhere else and you'll just buy it and you can open it on your TV. Right. So do I think it will ever come back? Sure. Sometime eventually, maybe. But in the meantime, it, you know, it will drift to a different service. And it did. It drifted to Peacock and that's where you can watch it now. 
Um, Daniel, final letter. I'm on the U.S. East Coast. I'm also a Hulu Live TV subscriber. I've set Hulu to record all the Women's World Cup matches because both the live event and rebroadcast are difficult for me to watch, but I will watch them all. How does this watching behavior translate to ratings? So my understanding is if you're involved in a rating system, which means, you know, basically if I don't think like they're measuring streams to generate TV ratings. I think that there are still panels to do that. But my understanding is there are different ratings. There's watching live and there's watching with a delay, uh, you know, in 24 hours, in three days, in seven days. And those are all different ratings. So you may not be being measured, but that's how that works is that there's live, but everybody knows that DVRs exist now and, and uh, whether they're virtual or not. And that's why there's also a live plus three and a live plus seven, live plus one. And, um, and those are, and, and they matter differently to different advertisers, but advertisers are like, you know, if they, if they get it in three days, they feel happier or they get it in seven days. So that's my understanding. Anything to add there? Yeah. Yeah, just remember that when you look at ratings, let's use traditional ratings boards like Nielsen or Barb in the UK, they are extrapolating from samples yes. to kind of give an aggregate of what is likely to happen. So when a lot of people will think like, oh, are they tracking what I'm doing? Like, no, not no. unless you're signed up for it. But if you, you know, stats 101 for all my stats fans, if you hit a certain threshold, typically about 1,000, then 10,000, right? If you hit within there, Nielsen sits at way, way, way higher. Um, Parrot, for example, sits at 500 million daily streams. Like when you look at that, you are then able if you're in an extrapolation system like nielsen to then say here's what that would look like in aggregate across and so that's just how they get it um and then when you are recording that to jason's point about l plus uh, l l plus one l plus three l plus seven which is what if you see those ratings that's what that means live plus one live plus seven is that's where they take into account people who have like dvr'd it or coming back to it those ratings Fun trivia point, you know who they are most important to? A small company called HBO, because they are a subscription service. So they are very important to uh, HBO is the full month or the L plus 7, L plus 14. Mm. Less important, but still important to the broadcasters who sell advertisers on a lot of live television uh, kind of every single night. So it's... Depends on what you're trying to go for, but but it's exactly what. But Jason there is said. an assumption that I think people make that oh, because it's a stream and I'm on Hulu, like Hulu Live TV knows that I'm watching and it gets counted somewhere. And the answer is, unless you're opted into a measurement service, which I I can't remember which one, but there was one of my streaming services I remember they were like, oh, would you like? W- can we use your telemetry data to for ratings or something? And I was like, okay, that's interesting. But generally it's a privacy thing. Like unless you opt in or, 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 you know, or, or notified or something, you're not being used to measure ratings, right? Like the ratings, you're actually, they know what your demographics are there. You, you have to like, say I am part of a ratings panel. So you'd know it if it were. So I know there's this thought. I always thought, had this thought when I had a TiVo, right? It's like, well, TiVo knows that I'm watching this show now, but like they would occasionally do like fun things with the data in aggregate, but like it wasn't, Actually, TiVo, you know, TiVo did have an opt-in. You could opt in to some panel stuff on there, I think, where they would actually sell that data off to Nielsen or someone else as a partner. But generally, Daniel, don't worry about it too much. Um, but if you if you were part of a rating panel and you watched it within a day, you would be in the Live Plus 1, Live Plus 24 hours, or within three days, you'd be in Live Plus 3, and it, it would still count in the ratings. But you're probably not being rated. Okay, if you've got a question for us, visit downstreamfeedback.com. Love to your mothers. We love to hear from you. 
And if you haven't yet, please consider subscribing to Downstream Plus. This was a full-sized episode for everyone, but the only way to hear the complete version of our next episode will be to subscribe. Go to downstream.plus to subscribe and support the show. You can find Director of Strategy Julia at parrotanalytics.com and puck.news. You can find me at sixcolors.com and I appear at many other podcasts here at RelayFM and theincomparable.com. And that brings us to the end of the show. Julia, until next time, say goodbye. Bye, everyone. <laughs>